with issue for all women. Hello, Hannah here and welcome to episode 255 of the Standard Issue podcast. You don't usually get to hear me first. How exciting for you. For reasons I won't bore you with, there's not a Bush Telegraph or a Rated or Dated this week. Although there is one reason which is not at all boring, which is that Mickey and I went to Rome at the weekend to see the boss. Now, normally when I say that, I have to explain that when I say the boss, I mean Sarah Millican and not Bruce Springsteen. But on this one occasion, I don't mean Sarah Millican. I do mean Bruce Springsteen. Yes, we did have a lovely time. Thank you very much. I've got some fun pictures of it, which I'm going to put on our Patreon site for our subscribers to have a look at, should they wish. Thanks for giving us some of your hard-earned cash. It is always appreciated. Consider me doing Steve Van Sant face as your reward. And every cloud has a silver lining. A little bit of extra space means we're able to bring you a slightly longer interview this week. One that I did with author Caroline Lee about her genuinely great novel, Prize Women, which is based around the real historical event, the Great Stalk Derby, which happened over the course of a decade in Toronto. And, as the name suggests, offered a huge cash prize for women who could have the most babies in a decade. It made a lot of people at the time very angry and still has the power to make Caroline and I really angry nearly a century later. So I can promise you we had an excellent chat. And also coming up, another smashing listen in which Jen chats to best-selling and award-winning author Dr Rachel Hewitt about her new book, In Her Nature, How Women Break Boundaries in the Great Outdoors. Get ready for some interesting talk about grief, loss and the erasure of women from sporting history. You are welcome. Hi, Hannah here. I am joined by Caroline Lee, author of what I've been reading this weekend. Excellent new book, Prize Women, which is available to buy now. Thank you for joining us, Caroline. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's amazing to be here. So we're going to talk about your new book. But first, we're going to have to talk about what became known as the Great Stalk Derby the historical event that your book is based on. So maybe you could start by telling our listeners about the will of Canadian millionaire Charles Vance Miller. Yes, so what became known as the Great Stork Derby wasn't an event that I'd heard of, but I sort of can't understand why when you hear the details Mm. of it. It just sounds so outrageous. It feels like something that, that everyone should know and should just be readily talked about in the public domain. But essentially, Charles Vance Miller was a very wealthy lawyer and I mean something of a sociopath I think God, yes. he, he was a, a practical joker who was single obviously and understandably but used to amuse himself by doing things like gluing dollars to the sidewalk and then hiding to watch people fail to pick them up and used to spend quite a lot of his free time free childless time um, <laughs> having debates on points of law and that was actually how he died he was in the middle of a debate at lunch with some lawyer friends or acquaintances probably I think given his personality sprinted up the stairs and had a heart attack and died and his will when it was then revealed had a number of clauses which were then hugely controversial so he'd left shares in a brewery to a group of teetotalers he'd left shares in a jockey club to kind of an anti-gambling 
League. He had left a house in Jamaica to four lawyers who hated each other and were well known for hating each other. And they could only inherit it if they all lived there at the same time. And so one by one, these cases were sort of discussed, taken to court, discussed, debated. It turned out all the shares had been sold years ago. The house in Jamaica had been sold years before. And I, I think he was probably just laughing at people from beyond the grave mm. from where his little feet were on fire. <laughs> it's funny you should say that about being sociopath, because the first time I encountered this story, which I heard you on Women's Hour, and I sent an email to Mickey and Jen, and I said, I need to talk to this woman about this prick. Absolute prick, because it all sounds kind of very amusing and like the setup for some sort of comedy drama. Yeah. Until you look at the ninth and most controversial clause of his will, which was the the remainder of his fortune, which ended up being, I mean, the equivalent today of about $5 million was to go to the woman in Toronto who in the 10 years after his death could have the greatest number of children. And at that point, I mean, this is 1926. So then in 1929, the Great mm. Depression happens, the swathes of poverty and social destitution that swept across America and Canada left hundreds of thousands of people homeless and in desperate need of money and what I think is is almost a kind of continuous thread through history is that the people at the narrow end of the wedge who end up taking on the burden of trying to scrabble together money to survive mm. is women and particularly, not always, but, but women with children and yeah. mothers. It just ended up being a hideous situation, which then turned into a media sensation and an enormous court battle. Once it kind of became more readily known in the public eye, reporters were eager to maximize the coverage of this story because it sounds like a it's a wonderful story if you're not yeah. involved in it and if you're just on the sidelines it's amazing yeah. all these women having babies for money having been a journalist if your job is all day reporting on something really depressing which it would have been during the depression yeah. you are desperate for anything that looks Absolutely. vaguely what you what you would call good newsy or you know happy family-ish albeit that was far from the case. That was one of the angles that journalists took of kind of look at these enormous families. Isn't it wonderful? And they used to essentially go around the the poorer areas of Toronto, knocking on doors and offering to pay a dollar to women with large families to take their photograph and write a little bit about them. So there were these women who were incredibly poor, Mm. um, who suddenly found themselves with their pictures on the front paper and all their kind of business being talked about by their neighbours. And things sort of spiralled from there. And the idea of the court battle then then meant that it wasn't just women's, the size of women's families that were being discussed. It was their behaviour yeah. and their sexual behaviour and whether they were good mothers. And it was women sort of being put on trial for the extent to which they performed the expected role. Yeah. Everyone sort of delighted in it. So when I learned about this, which was thanks to you, my instant reaction was, and I don't think this is an overstatement, I would say my instant reaction was total fury. Mm-hmm. It's very rare that I've learned about something historical that has made me so angry so quickly. Yeah. I'm interested to know, where did you first hear this story and what was your gut reaction to it? I enjoy looking at historical or archived footage and I'm always kind of scouting around for various ideas for stories we were talking about about some of the stories that you've covered on on past episodes and Mm. what a kind of a rich source they are for stories yeah and it was looking through some YouTube footage and suddenly something cropped up which was an archived piece which just showed women lining up 
hundreds of children and talking about the Great Stork Derby. And it was British footage. And as I kind of looked into and Googled initially, because it was during lockdown that I was I was writing this book. Good old lockdown. Yeah. Everyone <laughs> just sitting at home going, I must find out more about this. <laughs> yeah, so it was British footage. And it had, this story had actually gone global at the time. And initially, my response was disbelief. And I had to find information from a variety of sites before I could actually get my head around what had happened and why because it sounded it sounded almost like a hoax and I think people thought initially that it was some sort mm. of a hoax and their will was challenged initially but then yeah I spent quite a lot of time while I was writing being absolutely furious at that prick as you said <laughs> so a lot of the coverage at the time kind of focused on Charles Vance Miller and his will and then on the women and the numbers of children they had and their behavior and mm. as I said before whether they were good mothers or not so I think then the driving force for me when I was writing this novel was more along the lines of what would that be like what would it feel like for those women who were they aside from just being cast into this role of ideal mother or not or kind of sexually promiscuous woman mm. or not because women's sexual behavior became well there was some woman who became laughing stocks in the court there was one woman who'd had a relationship with at least two different men by whom she'd had children one of the men had essentially coerced her into having more children her case was eventually thrown out because she she wasn't married to a kind of one man and had had mm. children with him but she became like a laughing stock and then was kind of accused of being hysterical when she expressed any emotion in court. So there was so many things about the story that made me really, really, really furious. Yeah. Um, and I do usually, I know you've told me that I can swear. I do usually swear a lot more, but I'm just not, I'm not sure I can rein it in. It makes me <laughs> that angry. So I'm not going to start on my on my list of nouns and adjectives. <laughs> yeah, add them in. Feel free. <laughs> I think the gut reaction is, and, and you telling that story about him sticking notes to the floor, it does have a sensation of of someone just throwing money out of a window at, at poor people below and watching them scrabble. And I think yeah. that's part of the reason it made me angry. And I think it's partly to do with the sort of the fascist connotations, because at exactly this time over in mm -hmm. Europe... Hitler and Mussolini are saying, have more babies, have more babies. So it's got this really yep. sort of dark undertone to it. But I have to say it's partly because my nan, had she emigrated to Toronto rather than to London, she would have been in the running for this. She had nine yes. babies in 10 years. Yes. And she oh was dead God. at 44 because it's oh. not good to have nine babies in 10 no. years. And she would have been the prime example because, of course, she would have been in the running, but she wouldn't have won because she would have mm -hmm. been deemed to be one of those women that was of poor character because she was, and I'm guessing a lot of women who were involved in this, she was poor, she was a Catholic, she was Irish, but also she and my granddad were never married. So she would have been the woman in court having her character dragged over. Can you tell me who eventually actually won? the stall derby yes so the money that was was eventually handed out was divided between four women who were white anglo-saxon middle-class women who were able to kind of hire lawyers to represent mm -hmm. them and their cases they were married none of the women came from the slums of toronto which were called skid row and were just you know a hideous area to be in one of the women who didn't win and it's something that i allude to in the novel that was what i think the most traumatic scene to write really um her her child died of rat bite fever, which I didn't didn't even know was a thing before I started writing the book. But then she had to kind of discuss it in court. And 
and talk through why that had happened, mm. um, which obviously was hideously traumatic. But then after that whole ordeal, after women's characters had been decimated, the women who won it were women who were kind of socially respectable and well off enough to to have survived yeah. without the money. And I think that's that's sort of the point because it's not just it's not just the financial kind of life and death aspect of, of the money for these women. Obviously, it's money that puts food on the table. Yeah. But something that I've tried to talk about in Prize Women is the, the way that the money would have offered choice and autonomy to the women. Can't be having that, Caroline. Yeah, no, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. No, no choices, no autonomy. Just do as you're told and, and have babies and be quiet about it. Yeah. And and so that that was really kind of one of my main my main focal points because it is it's outrageous. It's yeah. outrageous. And it's outrageous that it's still something that feels relevant today. Miller's not the only prick in this story. He basically created a game with no rules and yeah. games need rules. And the yeah. society, Canadian society and Canadian law and Canadian men decided what the rules were. And they were designed to almost to filter out any woman that actually really needed this money, because the last thing we need is that those people having money. Exactly. It sort of became like a, a way of enforcing some sort of patriarchal kind of absolutist mm. moral code where this is the, these are the women who deserve to be rewarded. And it is you know, as, as I alluded to before, it is something that, that, that still goes on today. And I talk about it a little bit in my author's note that um, in some countries, uh, in Russia, there's a there's a sort mm-hmm. of mother's medal yeah. for women who have more than 10 babies. And you talked before about the atmosphere in Europe at the time that, that the Stork Derby race was going on. And eugenicists in, in Canada had loads to say about the idea of kind of people having more babies and who should be allowed to it raised all sorts of of very uncomfortable wider social discussions which are horribly and almost unbelievably still discussions that right-wing parties lean on today and it's worrying this book is released at an interesting time because in the past few months there's been a growing conversation about the falling birth rates in the western world and I think it's it's for all sorts of reasons, obviously. I mean, contraception, career women, all of those things, you know why. But actually, one of the points that I think isn't often discussed is, like I say, my nan had nine babies in 10 years, but she actually had 13 in total. And my dad grew up in a house where they had no money and, and almost no time from their mother because she was always pregnant or had a baby, you know, on the yeah. go. And I think the impact of that carries on down generations. Some of my dad's siblings had no kids. None of them had more than three kids. And her grandchildren haven't had a lot of children either. The idea that everyone has their immigrants are going to come and take over, because if she has 11 kids and they have 11 kids and they have 11 kids, etc. In my experience, that's not what happens. We've gone down. She has less great-grandchildren than grandchildren, which shouldn't be how that works in that theory. I don't know what my question is here. Do you think, do you think, given the mood at the moment around birth rates, do you think a similar thing could happen again? I don't mean literally a millionaire leaves money, but do you think we're getting to a point where this conversation is going to come up again and women are going to be put under pressure to have more children? It's such a, a nuanced discussion because there's the, uh, the other side to it is that there are so many people who need support who've got large families and haven't got the, the necessary support mm. in, in order to kind of to nurture those families. 
and that support that is offered by certainly the government in, in this country is mostly aimed at, at getting people back into the workplace mm. to kind of facilitate economic growth. And, and that that's sort of the main angle and incentive to have children from kind of a, a wider kind of socio-political point of view, rather than like from a personal level, the impact and the the desire to have children by some people then becomes like a social pressure for other people who can't have children for whatever reason. Yeah, exactly that. And that's sort of equally difficult. I, I don't know if I could, I mean, I would have said, if you'd asked me, I don't know, some years ago, whether I could I could foresee the idea of financial incentives for people to have children, I think I probably would have said no. But the fact that, that quite a lot of countries are doing it, I know that there was, um, there's there's talk in China of kind of, of incentivizing women to have children um, and then discussion about the implications that that might have. And just the whole idea of political power over women's bodies, mm. for whatever reason, you know, it, some when I was a kid, I remember that, that China was deeply entrenched in a one child. Exactly. Policy. Yeah. I mean, you think they'd have had enough of social engineering. Yeah. But but as I was saying, it's it's kind of it's it's women who find who find themselves sort of being being physically pushed around mm. and and having to make decisions that then kind of put their bodies literally in the firing line, like you said about your, your poor nan, the toll that that takes and not just on your body, but psychologically, I, I can't really manage my two children. And they're really lovely, <laughs> really interesting, easy, nice children. I don't know what I would do with with more and the idea of feeling under pressure to produce this figure that's going to kind of lead to economic prosperity it's dystopian so all of that said how do you mm -hmm. sit down and write a novel about two women may and lily mm -hmm. who are 20th century women and how do you sit and write that without imposing all of your feelings your 21st century feelings on them um, so uh, much drafting <laughs> is, is the answer. But I became, um, I think partly as well because I was writing in lockdown, I became entirely obsessive about and consumed by the idea of what it would have been like to to be in the position where you have to have children. And also, well, you didn't really have any choice because yeah. contraception isn't really a thing at that time. And so for me, one of the main focal points of the novel is what it does to these women and their relationships and specifically their relationship with each other. Because I wanted to think about female friendships and friendships and relationships between mothers and the idea of kind of bodily autonomy and how that might find kind of a way through all of this mess of children and childbirth and mm. external pressure. I think for me that that provided kind of the point of optimism and hope within within the novel. I kept the the focus quite small on the two women, although I do kind of bring in the other women as characters. Just kind of wanted to focus on what on what the Stork Derby did to their relationships. Crucially, I fictionalised them. So although their stories and particularly the individual incidents that are taken, for instance, the child who dies of rat bite fever, and the women being sort of essentially forced by by the men in their lives in order to have children that's all based on fact mm -hmm. um, and on the research that I did but the women themselves are essentially composite figures because I didn't feel and I never quite feel comfortable writing about a real life character who might have descendants who then feel like their their great-great-grandmother has been co-opted into a story and fictionalized and kind of given yeah. given a life that she might not have had 
Fair enough. Yeah. I listened to a, a This American Life podcast about it after reading your book. Mm. They said on that, that that children born into stalk baby Derby families mm-hmm. had a higher mortality rate than other children in Canada at the time. Presumably because this is the pressure of big families. This is what happens. You know, I have to say of my dad's siblings, only 11 of them made it to adulthood. So that's a, that's an example you have. You know, they're, they're just not as robust, perhaps physically, as children born into smaller families who eat better, probably get more exercise, you know, get more sleep. Yeah. All of the things that actually yeah. make you a more robust physical human being. Yeah, and because of the, the, you know, the social conditions that so many of those kids must have grown up in, mm. not just the idea of like maternal uh, nutrition and the, the toll that it must have taken yeah. on on those women's bodies. And that, um yeah, it's, I mean, it has all these other like just, yeah, really uncomfortable ramifications, the idea that these these children were born who then had a lower life expectancy and, and a more difficult life ahead of them. Mm. None of the women who were caught up in the, the Stork Derby kind of court battle and who discussed it, all of them were very, very adamant that they would have had those children anyway. Yeah. And who's to, you know, who's to question that? Although obviously within within the fictional context, that's one of the things I chose to do. And I think before when you're asking, you know, how do you approach that story? All fiction is sort of a a, a what if, even when you're writing within the confines of a of a story that's mm. based in fact, it's a what if and why and an exploration of 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 the feelings and emotional landscape behind it. And I think that idea of I can say publicly that these are the children I would have had anyway. And obviously, I love my children, but as that woman at the time, would I have had them? Is it more complex than than the public face and the yeah. public persona that, yeah. that is presented by the media? And that was sort of. Uh, an interesting route in for me when I was writing it. And of course, specifically for a Catholic woman, which one of your characters mm-hmm. will be because she's she's an Italian immigrant. It's not just your husband. It's not just society. It's it, it's God telling you to have more children as well. Yes. There is this other external pressure or certainly maybe not telling you to have more children, but certainly telling you not to take action to stop you having children. Yeah. Yes. That whole expectation and kind of the, the, the weight of the, the weight of expectation mm. that you carry, definitely. Yeah. Um, I think one of the things that you do really, really mm. well, going back to talking about, about infant mortality, is to underpin that it doesn't matter how many children you have, losing a child is still a tragedy. And yeah. I think that's something that's, I don't know, certainly at the time, I don't know how people feel about it now but certainly at the time the idea of well I mean you've got 10 more what what are you moaning about that's the sort yeah, of they're just society. spares yeah. yeah yeah I think that's that's done incredibly well thank you yeah I, it feels easy looking back to, to sort of take that attitude of well you yeah you have so many children you've got all these all these other spare kids mm. so it wouldn't have the same impact and I think it's something that I'm, I don't know if other writers are drawn to kind of similar things, but I think I have a compulsion to write about things that feel quite close to home. And I had a hideously traumatic, before the birth of my first kid, hideously traumatic kind of late diagnosed miscarriage. Yeah, it was horrible and it sort of stayed with me, mm-hmm. I think. And I kind of channeled that when writing about that sense of loss, because even though didn't go through the entirety of pregnancy and labor and so on I think as soon as you find out you're pregnant certainly for me that wasn't just some cells that were that were growing it was a life Mm. and I foresaw the next you know 
18 years of looking after that child and my expectations were kind of geared around that and I don't think that having 10 other children although I would never could never imagine that um, I don't think that would change the the sense of hope and expectation that you would have when when pregnant and expecting a child yeah oh I'm sorry you went through that we've talked to a lot of people about this and it does seem that miscarriage at any stage but certainly you know late stage miscarriages we've we've spoken to some people about that that even the medical profession can't seem to get their head around the idea Mm. that this is an incredible trauma that women have endured and just go home and try again seems to be yeah 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 um yeah and and said with kind of utmost kindness the idea that you know you will get over this it Mm. happens a lot and I'm a big believer that kind of universality of of, uh, an event doesn't make it any easier to deal with on a personal level. Oh, absolutely. Everybody's parents die eventually. It doesn't mean it's not really traumatic when your parents die. It doesn't make it any easier. It doesn't mean like, oh, well, that happens to everyone. Exactly that. Caroline, I absolutely love this book. Please tell me that you're writing something else that I can read soon. Thank you. I am. I have just completed, and I don't know if I'm allowed to say, but I'm going to say anyway. I am writing a book about the kind of month to six week long period when Mary Shelley first wrote Frankenstein. Oh, yes, please. (laughs) Thank you. So, yeah, I'm just kind of fascinated by that hothouse environment of being cooped up with those pricks. With those pricks. It's more pricks. It's more pricks. I don't, but I don't want it. I don't want some sort of biography written about me that says that I'm drawn to pricks because that, that's what, maybe maybe that's what I can say to editors when they're like, what do you write about? Well, I write about pricks, historical pricks. <laughs> yeah. So that, that idea of being kind of cooped up with storms raging outside um, and not just kind of the I think lots of people know about the idea of the the ghost story competition and the idea of these Mm. very educated literary people sort of competing to terrify themselves and each other but just the kind of various nuances of those ridiculously interwoven threads of the relationships yeah how how an 18 year old could formulate a creature that was then perceived as a monster so that's really my my kind of jumping off point and I'm I'm loving it what point being cooped up in a house writing a novel made this appeal to you Caroline I cannot think <laughs> <laughs> I've been desperately trying to write book after book because part of the reason I settled on on this story or the, this that the Mary Shelley story inspired me was because I had been trying to write other things before and just couldn't and in the same way that she comes down every morning and Byron is like have you written a story yet and she's like no I haven't <laughs> And I, when I started writing about not being able to write, I was like, oh, this is the easiest thing I've ever written. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, please come back and talk to us about that when it is out, because, um, yeah, Thank I'm looking you. forward to that already. I would love to. Prize Women, available to buy now in all good bookshops. Thank you so much. I'm joined by Dr. Rachel Hewitt, best-selling and award-winning author, who is here today to talk to me about her new book, In Her Nature, How Women Break Boundaries in the Great Outdoors. Hi, Rachel. Hello. Thanks for having me on. Thank you very much for joining me. So the book, In Her Nature, it started as a kind of exploration of women's participation sort of through history in outdoor pursuits, sort of fitness and running and that kind of thing. 
But then you were rocked by events in your own life, which changed your focus a little bit. Would you mind telling me a little bit to start off with about the book, what it's about and, and what inspired it? Yeah, so when I initially started work on the book, it was probably around sort of 2017, 2018. And it sort of started off with my discovery of the joy of trail running, basically, and realising how much the sort of joys and benefits and meanings that I was finding in running were related to the fact that I'm a woman. And, you know, I really wanted to kind of read more about this. I wanted to read memoirs by other female runners and, you know, read other women writing about how they have to fit their outdoor pursuits around like childcare and how things like the sort of gender pay gap um, affect the amount of disposable income that women have to spend on sport, you know, how the leisure gap affects women's access to sport. And, you know, at that point, most of the best-selling running memoirs that I came across were written by men. And actually, often they put forward their experiences of running and outdoor leisure as being kind of universal ones. Mm. And I was sort of like, well, actually, you know, I want to read more about what it's like to constantly feel fear, you know, when you're running at night. So I sort of set out, I suppose, to write down some of my own experiences in running that were mediated through the fact that I'm a woman. But I kept coming up against this idea in histories of sport that, you know, women's presence in outdoor sport was really recent, you know, that we'd only really sort of started running and mountaineering and hiking in the 1970s onwards. At first, you know, I came across this claim so many times that I thought it sort of must be true. So I sort of nodded and smiled a bit, you know, and then I started to question it and thought, can this really be true? You know, sort of running and walking. These are really basic forms of human emotion. Like, surely women have been doing this for centuries. And so I started sort of digging a bit deeper into, you know, the history of outdoor sport and did find this extraordinary long history of women kind of achieving amazing things in sport. And and again, you know, was really sort of struck by the fact that even very early women who were running and hiking very long distances, climbing incredibly difficult ascents, you know, they were writing about their experiences and how they, again, related to them being women in the world. But I suppose, you know, as much as I was heartened by discovering these early stories, I was also really disturbed by the fact that we've lost them, you know, that they are so hidden and so hidden that even sort of academic scholars of sport were making claims like women's history of sport is just them being spectators. So I started to want to uncover why these stories have been lost and what we've lost as women now in the great outdoors you know what we've lost through not having these female role models and then in 2019 I lost five members of my family in a relatively short space of time and realized that I was starting to see the whole world really through this prism of grief and loss and you know some of the things that go alongside I think kind of quite traumatic loss is a sort of feeling of discomfort in your own body, in the world at large. You know, I was really surprised and struck by the fact that grief to me felt like kind of being ill. And I hadn't, hadn't expected that. And I became much more sensitive, I think, to other forms of loss that arguably women suffer because we're women. So, you know, like street harassment when I'm running you know, it's something that I've sort of faced for years and years. And I think before 2019, I probably tried to harden myself to it a bit. But in the wake of 
all this grief. I was suddenly kind of much more sensitive. It was like I'd lost my thick skin. And so in a way, I guess the book is about historical loss, but it's also about personal loss. And it's about, I think, how personal loss can make you see the world through a prism of grief. And it, for me, shone a light, I think, on numerous forms of loss, really, that are inflicted on women by men. You know, I'm referring to it as loss, but a lot of this stuff is stuff that's kind of taken from us, you know, so it's kind of theft, right? It's like the freedom to walk around well, to go for a run at night, for example, it's not like we've lost that, like you lose a kind of earring in a nightclub or something, right? You know, it's sort of something that's taken from us by men. And equally, I think the history of that early history of women in sport isn't something that we've just lost accidentally. It's, you know, been suppressed. You weren't always a runner, were you? So you got into trail running when you moved to Yorkshire. It was my early 30s. So I was like the most unsporty child. <laughs> you know, there was some kind of county wide competition for sport when I was about seven or eight. And I literally came last in the whole county. You know, I was the least sporty child officially in Warwickshire when I was about eight. And I think the sort of world of like school physical education just left me cold. You know, I wasn't naturally fit. I wasn't comfortable in my own skin. I wasn't particularly coordinated. So I suppose I just sort of grew up through teenagehood and really into my early 20s thinking sport was not for me. You know, it was very male dominated at school. Girls sport basically consisted of like the male gym teacher looking up our skirts when we did trampolining. You know, that was kind of it. And so, yeah, very much grown up thinking sport is kind of men's world and within it, women are decorative. But then I think in my 20s, I was quite attracted to road running. And I think what attracted me was the kind of quantification that's at the heart of it, right? You know, road running essentially is about your kind of speed and your fitness. And there's a huge amount of mental arithmetic that goes on. You know, I'd spend runs just constantly trying to do sums in my head. How fast am I going? How fast am I going to achieve 5K? Is this going to be a personal best? And I'd suffered from anorexia in my teenagehood, and that's very much about quantification. And my head was used to spending all this time doing mental arithmetic around how many calories I was taking in and how much I was sort of expending. And so I think road running in my 20s fit in with that sort of sense of if I can quantify myself, then I can, you know, fit some sort of external standard of what it means to be a good girl. But I didn't run wisely in my 20s. You know, I didn't ever do any stretching or any strength training. All I wanted to do was hammer out the miles as quickly as possible, burn as many calories as possible. So I kind of kept getting injured and there wasn't much joy in it. <laughs> you know, it's pretty grim, actually, that sort of running. By the end of my 20s, I'd given up. But then, you know, I had my first daughter and we moved to Yorkshire and I just really craved something that would enable me to explore Yorkshire a bit more. You know, I wanted to get to know this new place that we'd moved to. And I had really happy memories of hiking in my teenagehood. And it's sort of the whole idea of long distance exploration on foot went hand in hand for me with the idea of freedom and possibility. And so I sort of wanted to recapture some of that, I suppose. But with children, I sort of felt like, well, I don't have time to actually go off for like weeks on end hiking across the dales. 
And a friend said to me, well, why don't you try trail running? You know, it's like hiking. It's just a bit faster. <laughs> and I started really very slowly, uh, literally like a kilometre up the river and back. And just built up the distance very slowly, very gradually, and kind of always with a focus, I think, on joy and pleasure. So I sort of didn't particularly monitor how fast I was going. In trail running, it's a bit pointless to be constantly monitoring your pace because obviously there's a huge difference in the type of terrain and the amount of ascent. You know, you can't really compare what you're doing with what other people are doing if you don't know the ground that you're covering. So I just sort of tried to switch off that quantifying part of my brain and just focus on like, yeah, joy and pleasure. Going back to loss, I guess, or what women lose through this industry in sport and fitness that is sort of set up to exclude them. One of the themes of the book is about claiming space for women. And I have to say, I enjoyed enormously the number of fuck-offs in the uh, in the introduction. <laughs> as, <laughs> as you're recalling various experiences in which men have essentially stolen your space or the space that you're using and it made me angry because anyone who has done any running any woman who has done any running or any cycling or anything like that outdoors has had those experiences of these either extremely aggressive men i remember having a cyclist scream in my face fuck you once and like how upsetting it was and catcalling and i also enjoyed the absurdity of the statement that women have only been running for since 1975 i wondered if you could tell me a little bit more about that theme about reclaiming space for women and girls yeah absolutely because i think you know when i first started trail running i sort of realized that a lot of the benefits it was giving me had this knock-on effect into the rest of my life so yeah it made me move in a more confident way you know I sort of realized that actually for a lot of my 20s I'd been sort of moving around quite apologetically you know slightly hunched over always sucking my stomach in trying to make myself as small as possible and you know you can't run up a mountain in that kind of posture (laughs) you kind of have to take up space and I started working on my strength a lot more and sort of doing kettlebell training and yoga as well and I think all of that yes it helped with my posture in running but it also just made me yeah move more confidently around the world and then there was this sort of logistical stuff that running encourages so you know I became much better at navigation and I became better at kind of recognizing my own needs you know I think that's one of the things that's really crucial to long distance running I mean in running it's kind of called looking after yourself or self-care you know and it's about recognizing all the sort of physical tells that go on in your body when you've done like 10 miles or 20 miles or 40 miles or 60 miles because your body's really different at those kind of stages and you have to learn to recognize you know what you need at particular points in order to feel okay enough to keep going And this sort of helped me to kind of get to know my body, I think, and listen to my body properly and really care for it in a way that I just hadn't in my teens and 20s at all. That has real knock-on effects in in the rest of a woman's life, I think, that, you know, once you've started prioritising your own needs and pleasures and desires in this window, in this bubble of running, actually you then go into the rest of your life and you think like, well, why shouldn't I be looking after myself in this situation as well? You know, so I sort of became better at looking out for myself, I suppose, whether it was in the workplace or in relationships. And I suppose I sort of felt this was happening to me at the same time that I was also developing a consciousness of the ways in which women 
are compelled to not take up space. You know, the, yeah, the multiple ways in which we are encouraged to be small and apologetic and yeah, and all that stuff about sort of catcalling, which is something I think about a lot, really, because I think it is an example of men using their sexuality as a weapon to take over public space and to demarcate it as a male space that's ruled over by male desire and male libido, you know, and I suppose I, yeah, became far more sort of sensitive and outraged to, about that. And then I think, you know, notice this arguably, I suppose, smaller examples. So, you know, I started reading up a lot on pedestrian dynamics, right? So the ways in which we all move around pavements, for mm. example, and and sort of found that there's quite a lot of research, a lot of which was done in the 1970s, but some of it's more recent, that found that men tend to pursue a straight line when they're walking on a pavement. You know, they don't get sort of deterred by obstacles. They just pursue their course. And they're also far more likely to sort of not pay attention to, I don't know, like rules of etiquette, right? So they don't stop at red lights and, you know, they just sort of walk out in the road. And so, like, you know, men are far more likely to be hit by cars, (laughs) but they're also far more likely to bash yeah. into women whereas like women's way of moving around the pavement tends to be far more circuitous we're constantly keeping an eye out for particular mm-hmm. obstacles and we get out of the way of men so it's all those sort of other dynamics and then yeah thinking about things like i'm very sensitive to people talking in um quiet carriages on trains so i sort of started doing a bit of research into that and found that you know surprise surprise it's men who take up that sort of auditory space as well you know And yeah, then noticing things like sitting on a train and realizing that whenever I had a man sitting next to me, he'd always put like both his arms on the armrests and I'd have to kind of sit there with like my elbows, you know, clamped into my waist. Or the whole like legs straddling web and you're like, oh, for fuck's sake, come on. Yeah, absolutely. All of this just seemed to be examples of man spreading, Mm. right? You know, yeah, the sort of masculine takeover of outdoor space. So I was becoming more sensitive to these ways in which I sort of felt my freedom outdoors as a woman to be Mm. encroached on at the same time that I was also becoming more like, no, fuck this. You know, I want, you know, running's given me this confidence to Mm. move around. I kind of, you know, I had this experience once in a bar, once where I was waiting at the bar to be served and this man with some other people who just kept bumping into me and touching me and in the end I said to him could you just stop it please like could you just stop touching me please and he was like oh I'm not trying to shag you or whatever and I was just like I don't care that's not the point I just don't want you to touch me can you stop it please and he was absolutely aghast like thought you know made out like I was just this absolutely hysterical it's just like would you like it like really would you like it if a stranger kept touching like it's not nice is it do you know what i mean like it does feel like an invasion of your space i think it's sort of really telling that his response was you know i'm not trying to shag you because like whether he was or not it's like he's still associating that kind of overbearing physical sort of intrusion right with sexuality and, you know, it sort of, yeah, reminds me of like, I was on a really crowded bus in London, like, you know, when I used to live there. And yeah, and this guy kept bashing into the back of me. And at first I was sort of like, this is rush hour on a crowded bus, you probably can't help it. And then realised, you know, he had a massive erection and was just kind of like using this to like, yeah. you know, jab his erection to like my back. And it's so sort of gaslighting, yeah. right? Because it's sort of using women's general sense of feeling a bit out of place in public space. It's sort of taking advantage of that. And it's like, I didn't really know what to say because it felt like if I turn around and said, can you take your erection out of my back? And you're right? making you know, a scene, right? I've like, been totally outraged. How dare you? You know, and so it just sort of felt like almost like double abuse. Yeah. That, you know, the sort of 
psychological gaslighting of it as well. Fucking hell, that's awful. I'm sorry that happened to you. Another theme in the book is grief. And, and one of the things that you talk about is how you were kind of hit physically by this grief, these family bereavements that you suffered, which stopped you from running for a time. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about how that kind of affected you and then how you got back into it and how that helped. I lost five members of my family in sort of quite short succession. So my father died and then my cousin died and my uncle died and my stepfather died very suddenly and I became estranged from my mother. And like my stepfather was the one who died last. And I think it was, you know, the sort of culmination of all these deaths. But he was, I was also like terribly, terribly close to him. And it was a very unexpected, sudden death. And I think it was sort of particularly after my stepfather's death that I experienced this probably cumulative, but also sudden extreme trauma and grief, I suppose. And, and I think, you know, I'm someone who sort of grieves very in intensely and did go to bed essentially for you know weeks and and did feel it very very physically I think there have been studies done that sort of show that you know actually some of the sort of immediate effects of traumatic grief resemble in the brain something a bit like brain damage you know but also sort of really affects you know everything mm. right it affects your digestion you know like I just wasn't hungry yeah. I felt incredibly weak and achy and and sort of felt like, you know, like losing sort of members of your family like that, I think for me, it felt a bit like losing my origin stories, mm -hmm. you know, like losing my sort of family home, my place in the world, that sense of who you're sort of part of and who mm -hmm. you're related to. And, and I think it was losing that sense of a sort of older generation, I suppose, at the same time as losing, I guess, my comfort in my own body, you know, my physical way of being in the world. And so I suppose felt recognized to some extent that running was really good for me physically and psychologically and that's you know one of the things that running's always given me or trail running has always given me I think is a sense of sort of feeling yeah more confident and at home both like in my body and in the world so I suppose I sort of latched on to running a bit as a, this is what's going to rescue me from this kind of intense physical illness of grief and so I, in a way, was, I don't know, reaching around a bit for something to fix this hope onto, you know. So I was trying to basically find a race that I could do and train for that would act a bit like a sort of rescue strategy or rescue mission from grief. And I guess I hoped that if I just drew myself up a spreadsheet of training sessions and, you know, stuck to them day in, day out, that this would, within a course of a year or something, make me sort of feel better about personal losses. And so I was roping around for various sort of races. But this was when lockdown hit as well, you know. So the first race that I decided was going to kind of rescue me from grief was the West Highland Way Ultra. And then that was cancelled. And then I latched on to something else, which was a sort of um, race in Nidderdale that was organised by Punk Panther. And then obviously that was cancelled as well. And so... In a way, the book is a sort of bit of a reflection, I suppose, on to what extent it is actually possible to recover from grief. What does that actually mean? Because grief isn't an illness, actually, in that you don't entirely, or maybe it's like a chronic mm. illness, you know, you don't entirely get better from it. It's something that actually you learn to live with rather than moving on from. And so I suppose the book is a bit of a reflection on, yeah, on my preconceptions about grief and my probably slightly mistaken approach to trying to deal with it, but also about, you know, the very real benefits that running 
did give me. It doesn't make it okay that all these people died and that I'm still really sad about it, you know, but it does help me to perhaps mitigate some of those losses that I was very sensitive to as a woman in the world. So the book is available now published by Chateau. Where can we follow you on the socials to see what you're up to and follow any any events around the book? I'm on Twitter. My Twitter handle is Dr. Rachel Hewitts. I have a free weekly newsletter on Substack, so you can, you know, sort of sign up for that. I have a website, which is www.rachelhewitt.org. And, you know, that has a list of upcoming events that I'm doing. Okay, great. Rachel, thank you very much for joining me. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Standard Issue for All Women.